0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host today on the channel. This afternoon, we'll be talking with Dr. Virginia Reinberg about her new book, Storied Places, Pilgrim Shrines, Nature, and History in Early Modern France a wonderful account of how people, spaces, history, and religion interacted in the 17th century. Ginny, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Elspeth. I'm really happy to be here.
1: So I have the good fortune of getting to know you as one of the faculty here at Boston College, uh, but for our audience, I wonder if you could just get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and um, how you kind of ended up in this place, uh, or this book, I should say.
0: I'm a professor of history at Boston College and a historian of early modern Europe. I specialize in French history and religious history. And the ways that I understand religion are rooted in my longstanding interest in anthropology. I've been reading anthropology since I was a little girl. And to study the history of religious life to me is to see religion as part of everyday life. And I also understand religion as a capacious reality. It's not just about institutions and theologies and dogmas. It's also about beliefs and places and feelings and hopes and everyday people. Awesome.
1: So this book we're talking about today is called Storied Places. And in the opening acknowledgments, you mentioned that having to move often when you were growing up has taught you that places and stories shape our lives. Could you say more about uh, how you came to that realization and what drew you to study the French shrines um, in the early modern era that you talk about in this book?
0: I grew up in a military family. My father was in the Coast Guard and we didn't move as often as other military families did. My parents thought it might have been because there were six children in our family and it was expensive, but we lived in different places in the U.S. And One thing I learned from that experience was that places differed from each other. And I learned to be an observer of places, of landscapes and of different natural worlds, but also of the ways that people talked about their worlds. And I'm sure that that has influenced the way I look at religious history and the differences in the ways different people uh, created religions in different places.
1: Great. So uh, we are going to be talking about early modern shrines, but I figure before we dive into the meat of your book, you could give us a little background on them. So what are the most common features of an early modern shrine in France in particular? uh, What should our audience be envisioning as we continue our discussion?
0: Well, I love that you put it as what should our audience be envisioning because I want to try to create a little bit of an image for you So a shrine from this period uh, is very similar in France to shrines in Italy or Spain or Latin America or England or anywhere else in Europe. It's generally a smallish chapel or church, often on the outskirts of a city or in a small town. And it's usually dedicated to the patronage of a saint or the Virgin Mary. And importantly, it has a history and it has a story. It has a story of God's or the Virgin Mary's favor shown to the place. And it has a history of gifts and benefits that visitors or pilgrims testify that they received there. Often they say that a miracle happened there. Um, So that's the history of the gifts that people say they receive at a shrine.
1: All right. So that's shrines in general. Now, part one of your book studies three regions and four shrines in particular to look at how people shaped and interacted with shrines in the early modern world. So I was wondering if you could take us through these three regions and these four shrines, a little bit of background about what makes them distinctive. Um, So I thought we could start with Saint-Ren in Burgundy. So who was this shrine to and what made this a distinctive place?
0: So the shrine of saint reine is dedicated to an early Christian virgin martyr who was reported to have been killed in that region of Burgundy, martyred just as the region was becoming a Christian place, maybe in the fourth or fifth century. Now I say perhaps, uh, is, uh, that's the governing word here, because saint reine is one of those early Christian saints that we're not actually sure existed because the paper trail about her life begins many centuries after she supposedly lived. The shrine was probably built around 1500 and it was expanded and rebuilt a few times in the subsequent centuries. What's distinctive about Saint-Ren are first the location, and two things about the location are important. Burgundy is now known as a wine region in eastern France. It has a very rich agricultural history, and it had a very rich agricultural uh, history back in pre-Roman and Roman times too. So this part of Burgundy is very near two main roads, one from Paris to points south to Italy in the Mediterranean, and another one uh, from Paris to points east, that is Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, and places further east than that. So the point is that people, goods, and ideas were always passing through this region very close to the place where the shrine of Saint-Ren is located. The other feature of the location, I would note, it is that the whole region was inhabited way, way back. There was a Roman city there called Alesia, right up the hill from the shrine of Saint-Ren, and that Roman city was still visible. It was in ruins, but it was still visible at the time of the shrine's greatest fame in the 16th to 18th centuries. There were also Roman temples or sanctuaries uh, right in Alasia. This had been an enormous Roman shrine uh, in uh, the in this had been an enormous shrine in the Roman period. There was also an enormous Roman shrine at the source of the Seine River, uh, dedicated to the goddess of the Seine, Sequana pretty nearby. So the region looked old. There were Roman ruins there. It looked like it had been inhabited for a long time. And this is the way it would have looked in the period that I talk about in the book. Another notable feature of the area right around the shrine is water. I just mentioned the shrine of Sequana, the goddess of the Seine. There were springs, rivers, and pools that people believed had healing properties all over this region. There was thermal tourism uh, from the 17th century forward, and if anyone knows anything about France from traveling there now, you know that there is still thermal tourism in France. There are baths, there are hot springs, there are all kinds of places where you can go uh, for a water cure. So the Shrine of Saint-Ren was in a great location. A lot of people passed through all the time. It was in a place that really looked ancient. It looked venerable and legendary. And it was near healing waters in the form of rivers and springs. Awesome. So you mentioned people traveling, which makes me think about pilgrimage.
1: Um, So I was wondering how studying a shrine like Saint-Troen in particular impacts the way we think about pilgrimage in the early modern era or even just early modern religious practices in general. If pilgrimage is a slippery term, Um, I'll let you talk more
0: about that. Very good question. So pilgrims visited visited the shrine of St. Ren in the 16th to 18th centuries. And many of them visited because they had a physical ailment for which they went to pray and take the waters. But when you look at the archives of the shrine and early books published about both the town and the shrine, it looks like most of the visitors to the shrine were simply people passing through. They were not people who specifically and deliberately went to this place on pilgrimage. They were travelers on their way to Italy or the Mediterranean, or importantly in the 18th century, they were labor migrants, people who worked in the textile industries, who took to the road to practice their craft uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So that really, knowing that, really made me question the bright line that many historians draw around pilgrimage as opposed to other travelers. Most of the people who visited the Shrine of saint in this period were probably, I would call them curious travelers, Uh, believers, of course, Christian believers, but not necessarily people who arrived with a specific religious motivation. They were people who came through the area and they visited the shrine while they were there.
1: Interesting. So almost more of a Religious tourism, perhaps, or religious sightseeing on the way to something else?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And anyone who's traveled around in any part of the world, you know that that's still a part of travel today.
1: Excellent. So that is our first shrine. What about the two you mentioned in the Central Pyrenees, uh,
0: Notre-Dame du Garçon and Notre-Dame de Béteran? So the shrines in the Pyrenees that I write about are in the mountains, very close to the Spanish border. But in the 16th and 17th centuries, they were on a different kind of frontier, not just the frontier or the border between France and Spain, but the frontier between Catholic regions and Protestant regions. So they were contested regions during the religious wars that consumed the kingdom of France for about 70 years in the second half of the 16th century and the first decades of the 17th century. These two shrines were also in a region of healing waters like saint reine in Burgundy, and they still are, but in a less direct way. Notre-Dame de Garaison has a spring running through it. There's still a little water source that you can visit if you go there. And there re- were reports that the waters were miraculous healing waters. Wonderful.
1: Um, so... Looking at these shrines uh, in the Pyrenees, you really focused more in your book on how nature and the divine interacted. Obviously, that's, you know, throughout the whole book. Um, But why did you pick out these two uh, to discuss early modern attitudes towards nature and divine? And then what, you know, what did you learn as you studied them with that lens?
0: So what really jumped out at me when I started investigating the two shrines in the Pyrenees were the ways that people thought about, uh, didn't necessarily write about or talk about, but thought about and related to and lived with nature. People in this period believed that nature was a creation of God. Uh, This was a very common belief at the time. It was also a force to be contended with, and people were constantly aware of the benefits of nature as well as its potential dangers and sudden surprises. Early modern people were really curious about nature. This is a period in which people begin to write about nature very directly. They saw it as a resource. Uh, They also saw it almost as a book that could be read. It could tell you how to understand the creator, the person who created the world, and also what to expect from the world. So nature was a constant source of wonder and surprise in this period. The weather, stars, floods in the Pyrenees, these are all things that people contended with, thought about, and talked about in the early modern period. People really looked to nature for information and for help and for hope. So really not that different than the way people understood God. Interesting.
1: Um, And would you say that the Pyrenees are distinctive, like these, by which I mean being in the mountains, uh, amplified the effects that you might find at other shrines? Or was there a particular uh, Pyrenean weather patterns or things like that, that uh, prompted more of this type of thought amongst early modern individuals?
0: Well, when I went to the Pyrenees uh, five or six years ago to look for these two shrines, which I found, I was really struck by the sudden changes in weather there. Maybe this is something that people that live in the mountains experience all the time. It was relatively new to me. So you could suddenly have a snowstorm and then later, beautiful, sunny day. And those extremes of temperature and those sudden changes, I think, were things that really stood out to me as someone who's visiting the mountains for the first time, visiting those mountains for the first time. And those are also things that people wrote about and thought about in the early modern period. So people were very aware of how extreme, extreme the winters could be, how extreme in the opposite direction the summers could be, for example, um, how bright and sparkling clear the sky could be. And then an hour later, everything is fogged over and you have no idea where you are. So I think there is something about being in the mountains, being in the Pyrenees in particular, that makes you think about the strength and the force of nature and the fact that you need to live with it and contend with it all the time.
1: Interesting. All right, so we have those three different shrines, and then the final one that you talk about uh, was actually not too far away, also in southern France. Um, But what about uh, Notre Dame de Puy in uh, Languedoc? How is that shrine or distinctive, or what drew you to it as the the final one to focus in on for this
0: book? So I'm delighted to talk about Notre Dame de Puy because it's the place that first drew me into this project. My first book was about Books of Hours, uh, so a very different kind of project. Uh, The Book of Hours is a prayer that was the best-selling book of the 15th and 16th centuries in France, and the books are full of conventional prayers and images, and when I was a graduate student uh, for starting research on Books of Hours, I found a prayer that I didn't find in any other book in one particular book in Paris, and it was titled, This is the Prayer that Notre Dame Dupuis held in her hand. So I, of course, researched Notre Dame du Puy and found out some things about the pilgrimage. And then a few years later, I was looking through a catalog of medieval manuscripts, and there was a photo of an image from a book of ours that was labeled Notre Dame du Puy in Auvergne. So Our Lady of Le Puy in the French region of Auvergne, which is uh, in the southern part of France, So then I went on a hunt for everything I could find out about that place, which turned out to be a shrine to the Virgin Mary in a small city in the volcanic mountains of southern France. The shrine's centerpiece uh, was and still is a small black statue of the Virgin Mary. So this is one of the famed uh, black Madonnas of uh, southern France and Spain. She was called Notre Dame du Puy. And she was the focus of a large-scale pilgrimage in the late Middle Ages and really up to the time of the French Revolution. Notre Dame du Puy was a kind of all-purpose pilgrimage, a very well-developed pilgrimage location with a shrine, with infrastructure for pilgrims in the late Middle Ages, and the early modern period. So there were hostels where pilgrims could stay, there were places to eat, there were places to buy souvenirs, and it was different from the other smaller shrines that I studied So like Saint-Tren, it was actually old. It sat on a site that was probably first a Roman temple, and then later a small Christian basilica built probably in the the fifth century. And then from the 10th century on, a pretty sizable cathedral with the image of the black Madonna, Notre Dame de Puy, that was reported to be be miraculous. So if pilgrims went to Le Puy on pilgrimage, and asked Notre Dame du Puy for help, they might well receive it. Interesting.
1: Um, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, this uh, phenomenon, I guess, of Black Madonnas in the medieval or early modern world. Uh, what did early modern people think that they were looking at, as much as we can tell? Um, it seems, I guess, to modern people, it might it might seem surprising that these images are uh Icons or uh, statues existed.
0: Um. So the, the black Madonnas, uh, here I'm borrowing work that's been done uh, by other people, especially art historians, and especially by the art historian Elisa Foster, who has studied uh, Black Madonnas in Spain and also in Lepuy. She's written about Lepuy. And what she figured out from a long study of the visual tradition, the artistic tradition, and also of the same uh, texts, the books and manuscripts that I also have studied, is that what black signaled in this period was ancientness. So it probably did not denote race in the way we would think about race, but the color black signaled to people in this period something that was ancient. So that really feeds into the interest in praying to, uh, praying in a shrine, for example, that had a very long history of pilgrims visiting there and praying to the Virgin Mary, praying to God there. And there was something about that little black statue of Notre Dame du Puy that made people think she had been there for a long time. She was going to continue to be there for a long time. And there was something that felt permanent and ancient and authentic about that.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. So this uh, last shrine that we're talking about, Notre Dame Foy, is in a city. So I was wondering how that changed the way early modern people interacted with it as a shrine um, and then with that, you're studying these uh, in particularly in the 16th and 17th centuries. So what added layers or complications did the Reformation and the subsequent wars of religion bring uh, with uh, Notre Dame du Puy as sort of your case study for this?
0: So, yes, Elspeth, as you're pointing out, uh, Notre Dame du Puy is different from the other shrines that I studied, which are in these tiny little towns or outside a town. Notre Dame du Puy is inside a small city. So it's also something that will look, when you go to it, like a cathedral. It does not look like a little shrine or a little chapel. The city of Le Puy in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period was a small merchant city. Its economy was really, however, based on the pilgrimage, sort of like tourist towns are today. So this makes it a very complicated place once. Protestants in the 16th century started asking questions about all the features of pilgrimage and the shrine that had made those things a draw for pilgrims. So Protestants begin to ask, should you pray to the Virgin Mary as opposed to praying to God, for example? Were images important or even acceptable in religious practice? So Lepuy is interesting because it's a largely Catholic city throughout this period, but there was a small Protestant community in Lepuy. And those Protestants began to challenge not only Catholic practices and beliefs, but the pilgrimage itself, which was not only the foundation of the economy in Lepuy, but it's also connected to the way the city saw itself. So it's connected to the identity of the city. So the religious wars between Catholics and Protestants that roiled the entire kingdom of France in the second half of the 16th century were especially acute in La Puy. I recount the conflicts, the riots, the massacres, public executions, and sieges of the city in that chapter in the book that discusses the pilgrimage to Notre Dame du Puy, in the long aftermath of the wars, so after the wars finally ended in the end of the 16th century, the city attempted to reconstruct itself and to reconstruct the pilgrimage.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, I loved in your book how you mentioned uh, some of the Protestants choosing to name their children Old Testament names or patriarch names. Uh, I had never known that was a, a sign of Protestantism. Yes.
0: Um, so. Yes. That, that's the way that sometimes the only way we can use to figure out which people and which families were Protestant in a period in which it was often dangerous to be Protestant.
1: So, um, Fun, fun for me to learn that uh, from your book. Um, so we've been talking about old shrines and new shrines and nature. And uh, that's really the first half of your book. But in the second half, you turn from the shrines themselves to the reception in print. Uh, and in particular, you focus on shrine books. So could you talk a little bit about what a typical shrine book would contain and why on earth uh, people wrote them? What were what were the maybe intended purposes that authors had in mind with
0: these texts. So books that were published about these shrines in the early modern period were my principal source for understanding the shrine's histories. There are some archives for some of these shrines, and believe me, I combed the archives in Lepuy, trying to find as much archival record as I could, uh, and there really is very little. So Histories that were published about the shrines in the 17th and 18th centuries were my primary source for the book. Chaplains, priests, and sometimes just local writers published many books about the shrines. They wrote about the histories of the places and the miracles and apparitions that they had heard about or they found in their research for these books. The writers that wrote these shrine books wrote to persuade readers and those who doubted the holiness of the shrines, or maybe readers who just doubted Catholicism altogether, this was the period of the Reformation, that the shrines were truly holy places because the Virgin Mary had appeared there, or pilgrims or visitors who had prayed to the Virgin Mary there had received a surprising and maybe a miraculous cure. So the authors of these books tried to prove in every way they could true to this period, that the places and the stories attached to them were authentic and true, and that therefore they concluded Catholicism was the one true faith. So there's an apologetic framework to the books, which needs to be understood if historians like me are going to resort to the books as sources for the histories of the shrines. But the books are also amazingly full of testimony about how people who visited the shrines understood those places, What they did when they got there, and what they hoped for from their visit to the shrines. The human dramas of life in this period are all displayed in these books illnesses, disability, financial disaster, war and dislocation, the deaths of children, it's all there. That's why it's important to read the shrine books critically to understand the apologetic framework that the authors are applying to the places but also to read these books for what they can tell us about visitors' hopes and suffering. So you sort of touched on this, but what made shrine books
1: so popular at this particular moment? Um, As a historian who's done work uh, a little earlier uh, on in the late medieval period, are shrine books a uniquely uh, early modern phenomenon? Or what, what drew people to them in the era you study in this book?
0: So the books about shrines were popular because there was a reading public, first of all, who wanted to read in French, not only in Latin, so people who could read French and not read Latin could read these books. The books were full of stories, uh, and also they were about religion, one of the most vexed and controversial topics at the time. The authors primarily engaged people's doubts about religion in these books. They fully confronted the fact that the Protestant challenge to traditional religion or Catholicism meant that now people had questions about important religious issues. And it was those questions that people might have, those nagging doubts about whether a shrine was really a holy place, whether you would really benefit, for example, from praying to the Virgin Mary that the authors of shrine books tried to confront in their books.
1: So to kind of take a little subjective turn, do you have a favorite story or account from one of these shrine books that you read? Uh, It's okay if you don't, but anything comes to mind.
0: Well, there's so many, really. There is one that I read very early in my research uh, about one of the Pyrenean shrines uh, that really appealed to me um, as a very human story and not a story of death and suffering necessarily, but one that really anybody can relate to. And that is a couple visited the shrine to ask for healing for their son who had some kind of speech impediment, not really clear to me from what they reported, what the speech impediment was. It might've been something very simple, like stumbling over one's words, something that we can all relate to. But the framework that they put around this problem and the reasoning that they gave in their story was that... This was such a serious problem for this child because the parents wanted him to go to a top flight school, to a Latin grammar school, to one run by the Jesuits, in which he would be required to give speeches to his classmates, to recite poetry, to recite speeches in Latin. And if he had a speech impediment, he would not be able to do that. So he could not go to that school. So he could not have the future that his parents envisioned for him. And it's a kind of ordinary story in a certain way. It's not about a child who is so disabled that they won't live a normal life. But it's about parents' hopes for a child being thwarted by a simple problem that the parents very fervently hoped if they prayed in the right place to Our Lady of Betaram that she would answer their prayer and cure their child and make it possible for him to have the future that his parents dreamed for.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's always interesting to see what jumps out to us and those moments, perhaps when studying history, when you, you recognize uh, just the very human element of your subjects, Um, which kind of brings me to my next question about, you know, the relationship between old and new and so much of your book is about, uh, this relationship, uh, particularly as people in the early modern period thought about it. So why are shrines and shrine books interested in questions of old and new and uh, history? Uh, why, why are they interested in this at this moment?
0: So one of the fascinating aspects of the books published about shrines in this period is the way that the authors emphasize that the shrines were ancient, So this is a time when to claim an ancient foundation for an idea or a place or a practice tended to persuade people of its authenticity and its truth. This is something that we might have to stretch our minds a little bit to try to understand, because I don't think that we automatically default to thinking that something that's ancient is more authentic or uh, has a greater claim to the truth. So some of the shrines that I write about in this book were truly ancient, like Notre-Dame Dupuis. There was probably a Christian basilica on that site in the 5th century. Others, like the shrines in the Pyrenees, eh, not so much. Probably actually pretty new. So those authors had to contort themselves to find ancient foundations for the shrine. Saint-Troian is interesting because Roman antiquities totally surrounded the entire place. The actual shrine of Saint-Ren probably does not predate 1500, but the full feeling of the place and the stories surrounding it was ancient, even if technically the shrine didn't appear until around 1500. That's what I started to think of as the kind of ambient antiquity of these places. So readers and Christian believers in this period wanted to know that holy places were ancient. They also wanted to know that the places were currently holy places, so not just holy places in the past. So news about recent miracles and wonders was also very important to potential pilgrims and emphasized uh, by the shrines themselves and the authors that wrote about the shrines. And this kind of oscillation between old and new is an important dynamic surrounding the shrines and the lore surrounding the shrines the idea is that the shrine has been here forever. It has an ancient history, so it's probably holy and it's probably true. But the shrine has recently also been a place where a disabled child started to walk or a deaf person suddenly could hear. So it's still a place of active divine help.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I think about uh, a lot of the Reformation debates that uh, both Catholics and Protestants sought to seek, you know, ancient sources for for them. Um, so interesting to see this kind of played out, not necessarily at the level of um, formal theologians, perhaps, uh, though certainly some authors, as you mentioned, were trained in theology. Uh, but this this general sort of argumentative uh, method, I suppose, in the early modern era Um And on that note, you wrote that quote: "Words in print were as important as stones in chapels when it came to creating religious monuments." End quote. Um, So I was wondering, is this particular to the early modern era? Uh, This question kind of came up uh, in the context of another early modern individual you quoted, who was reflecting on the Thirty Years' War, and he described it as a time when quote: "the ashes of our archives mixed with those of our fathers." Uh, which is just such a vivid image, um, really stick out to me. So how do you think this quote reveals the early modern mind um, and, and what does print or the written word have to do with it?
0: So, Elspeth, now you're really zeroing in on why I called the book Storied Places. Places have their own material reality, if you will. The shrines were made of what was local and distinctive to the place or what the place offered some mountains in the Pyrenees and Puy, Roman ruins and medicinal waters in Burgundy. But stories also made the places in a very important way. The authors of the shrine books collected local lore. They collected local stories about the shrines. They collected stories from local people and from pilgrims, and they preserved them in the books as testimony about what was holy and significant about that place. And the authors placed that local lore in a theological framework, which they hoped would prove that Catholicism was the one true religion. So both the story and the place made each other mutually. Wonderful. Um, We're
1: beginning to draw close to the end of our time here, uh, but I noticed as I was reading that several of the images that you use in your book uh, came from your own camera. So if listeners or future readers are interested, uh, how many of the shrines that you discuss can still be visited today? And what will we find if we go to them? Will we have an experience like uh, someone from 1650 or is it Uh, very noticeable that it'll be 2022 or 23.
0: I think you need to be willing to use your imagination. If you go to these places, some of the shrines that I write about in the book, uh, not the ones that I write about in great detail, but some of the ones that I refer to have completely disappeared. One of the trips that I made to France, actually to Burgundy looking for another shrine turned out to be just a field of mustard greens. So that one had completely disappeared. The shrines that I write about in the book are all still there, but they do not necessarily look like what they would have looked like to pilgrims in the early modern period. Le Puy, I have to say, has been beautifully restored. I was last there five years ago, and I saw that the cathedral has been restored. The facade has been cleaned. There's a beautiful new museum there. Notre-Dame de Garrison and Notre-Dame de Betaram in the Pyrenees are still there. Garrison looks beautiful, much as I imagine it would have looked back then. Betaram, a little worse for the wear, but still there. The site is still very impressive. The shrine is kind of built into the side of a mountain overlooking a furiously uh, flowing river. There's also a museum at Betaram that is an impressive, well-preserved... I would say, relic of a late 19th century museum, interesting in its own right. Saint-Ren is still there. One of the visits that I made, however, to the village, I was the only person that I ever saw there the whole afternoon I was there. It has a slightly abandoned and desolate feeling. That in itself is, I think, really worth seeing. It's not far from a huge, relatively new museum of the Roman past in Burgundy none of these shrines are truly pilgrim shrines currently except possibly Lapui, which puts on a big procession, a religious procession on August 15th, every year, the feast of the assumption of the Virgin Mary.
1: Wonderful. So next time I go, I'll have to, have to try to make a, I would say make a pilgrimage, but perhaps we'll use a different term, make a trip, uh, and do some religious tourism on the side. Um, well, Ginny, it's been lovely talking with you. Uh, a final question before we sign off. Uh, so has your work on stored Places led you in new directions for future research? Or is whatever current project you're on a totally new uh, subject? Um, what's on the horizon for you these days?
0: Well, my research was thrown off, of course, by COVID. That's true of so many of us. I was in France in March 2020, working on a new project on the early stages of the Reformation, and I had to flee the pandemic, and I haven't been back since. So I'm not 100% sure what is next. I've been working on a couple of smaller projects. I did take the opportunity, if you can call it an opportunity, of being locked down in 2020 and 2021, of taking some language courses online that I certainly would not have been taking if I had been doing archival research in France I think my next larger project will have to do with oral cultures, with storytelling, with rumors, speech and communication, maybe with fake news. I'm not entirely sure yet, but stay tuned.
1: Well, that sounds wonderful. Glad to hear that stories will continue to be on your mind. And uh, I look forward to hearing and reading whatever you discover. Um, So again, thank you so much, Ginny, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed talking with you. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of Storied Places, Pilgrim Shrines, Nature, and History in Early Modern France by Virginia Reinberg. I've been your host, Elspeth Curry, and you've been listening to new books in early modern history. Take care.